Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, this is the big finale of this teaching series. We've uh, worked 10 weeks on this, and we're finishing up with Evangelism, Thrive, Habits of Grace. Grab your sermon notes out. Also, turn to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In the New Testament, chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 27. We'll work our way to verse 42. Grab your sermon notes out also. There is nothing in this world quite like knowing God and making Him known. It beats anything else I've ever experienced. Once you've tasted of God's greatness and goodness, you just, you have to want anybody you care about to, to experience it also. If you don't, if you don't want all of your family and friends to, to know and experience what you're experiencing in this relationship with God, then what you have isn't very powerful. It isn't very potent. And, uh, but when you really walk in vital union and communion with the Creator, and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Oh my goodness. You want everybody, everybody to know about that. This is the fourth G of our 5G process of full devotion. We kind of talked about it last week, remember? If you've been with us, we have a 5G process here. Genuine, growing, giving, going evangelism, all for God's glory. Take a look at your notes here. We live in a very pluralistic society. And more than likely, you live and work around people who have very different beliefs from you. How can we be very open about our beliefs and still get along? That's the big question. Now, there's only three ways you can respond. One, hide who you are in fear. That's the first one, hide who you are in fear. Number two, speak out in a way that provokes anger in pride. I would uh, say we need to do the third one here. Number three, share who you are with gentleness and respect. In fact, it tells us to do that in 1 Peter 3.15. Let me kind of give you a uh, kind of summary statement of uh, 1 Peter 3.15. It says this basically, set Christ as Lord of your life. Put him at the center of your heart. Give him your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. And then always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And so that's what we're going to talk about here this morning, this weekend. We're going to talk about the call, the method, and the motive to share our faith. But before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes, we're going to pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And uh, then we'll dive into these notes and this text. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. What a sweet time of, of worship and song we've had. And now and now we worship you in the study of your word. Other than being lost in worship of you, nothing else compares to being an instrument in your hands used to communicate your love and truth to people you cared enough to send your son to die for. We confess, we confess that our, our sinful tendency is to, to spend our lives searching for some significant endeavor to give our, ourselves to when, when we have been chosen by grace through faith in Christ to be a part of the most 
powerful, redemptive, and transformative work in the history of the universe. We pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our eyes to the fact that there is no earthly enterprise as important as the business of bringing lost people to the cross of Christ. Help us to be your agents who first catch your love and truth and then urgently and infectiously offer it to those around us. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. John chapter 4, starting in verse 27. We're kind of dropping in right in the middle of of a story here. I'll bring you up to speed in just a moment, but I begin reading chapter 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so the Samaritans came to him They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Pretty powerful text. And so, let's begin, first of all, the call to share your faith. This is our vocation as believers. And so, let me bring you up to speed. Let me kind of walk you through uh, the first part of this chapter. It's a, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's got to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I've got a lot of favorite stories, okay? And so, it's like one of many. I've got about a billion, but this is a good one. This is really a good one. And so Jesus and his disciples are headed to Galilee, and they go through a region called Samaria. And in this region, they come close to a a town called Sychar, and outside this town is a well. And so Jesus and the disciples come to the well. Jesus sits down. He's very exhausted, and he sends all of his disciples in to get food in town. I guess it takes all 12 of them to, to get food. Yeah, I think he was just wanting them to get away. <laughs> get away from me for a while. 
And so he sends them all in to, to get some food. While he's sitting at this well, there's a woman of Samaria comes out to the well. It's about noon. Comes out to the well, and she sees Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, would you give me a drink? And she's shocked, absolutely shocked. And she says, I can't, I can't believe that you, a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. And then Jesus says something that's just really profound. It's just amazing. This is our Savior, keep in mind. And he says this. He says this to her, if you knew the gift of God and knew who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give to you living water. I love that, and she doesn't get it because she says, well, you, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> and the well's too deep. He's talking about something totally different. How many of you have ever talked to someone and you're trying to get across maybe the message of the gospel and they just don't even get it? They're just, they're totally clueless. It's like, come on, you don't understand this. And so it's just, it's really fascinating. And he goes, and he says something another, uh, also very profound. These words have just really stirred me through the years. And he says, uh, he says, you drink of this water, you're gonna be thirsty again. In essence, what he's saying is that you try to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul in anything in creation, it's not gonna happen. You drink of this water, you're gonna be thirsty again, but you drink of the water that I give you, you will never, ever, ever be thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give you will be in you like a, a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Oh my goodness, what is he talking about there? He's talking about an unending source of soul satisfaction unlike any of us have ever experienced except through him. There's nothing on this planet that can give you this unending source of soul satisfaction like this living water, like, like him. And, and of course, she responds. She still doesn't really get it. She says, well, yeah, I, I, want, I want this water so that I'll never have to come to this well again. And uh, I'll never have to, have to drink again. And so what does he say to her? He says, go, go get your husband. And so she, she responds in kind of half-truth. You know, we, we tend to, we don't want to let people know all that's going on in our life. It's too dark. And so she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yep, that's right. In fact, you have had five husbands and the guy that you are with now is not your husband. And I love it how she responds. She goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> no kidding. But you know what she does? She does this really quick, this art of deflection, changing the subject really quickly because in 20, verse 20, he says, she goes right from, I perceive you're a prophet to our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that the place where people ought to worship. So she immediately changes the subject. And Jesus goes with her because certainly this idea of worship is really all about, or this idea of, of this living water is all about worship. It's all about worship. It's all about what is gonna have our heart's deepest loyalties and affections. And by the time she gets to the end of this conversation about worship, she realizes that she has had an encounter with Messiah, with Christ, and she is overwhelmed. She's never had an experience quite like that. Not in her whole life, 
None of these five, six guys have, have ever made her feel the way that she's feeling right here, and she is so excited. She leaves the water jar, and she runs into, back into the town and tells all of her friends, and you know the rest of the story we read, and then they come out, and they begin to inquire. They begin to say, who is this? And, and many of them come to faith in him, and, and uh, their lives are transformed. Amazing story. Man, such a rich story, and so... The call to share your faith, this is our vocation as believers. So sharing our faith, here's your first fill in the blank, it is spiritual sustenance. We see that in verses 32 through 35. He says, I have food to eat you know nothing about. So he's saying that his sustenance is spiritual sowing and reaping. So as you walk that out, he begins to explain a little bit of what this food is. And, and spiritual sowing is pointing people to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Spiritual reaping is seeing some of them believe. So spiritual sowing is pointing them to Christ. Spiritual reaping is actually seeing them say yes to Jesus and, and give their lives to Christ. Spiritual sowing and reaping is not dessert. It's not an appetizer. It's the main course. That's what he wants us to understand here. It's not optional. It is a necessary habit of grace to our spiritual thriving. In other words, we need to be keenly aware of the people that God has brought within our circle of influence and touch uh, so that he wants to use us to make an impact in their life for him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing will fire you up more than when you get busy sowing and reaping with the gospel of Christ. It is spiritual sustenance, and nothing will bring that, that food to eat uh, like he says here. Number two, it is always relevant, sharing our faith and so the call to share our faith, this vocation that God has called us to, it is spiritual sustenance, it's always relevant. And we get that from verse 35. See that the fields are white for harvest. I want you to do something here. We do this uh, pretty regularly, and I like it because it makes you think a little bit. And I want you to turn to the folks sitting next to you, and I, wanna, I want you to ask them this question. What evidence do you see in this woman's life, this woman of Samaria, that she is dying that she is dying of spiritual thirst. What evidence do you see? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, what are you guys thinking? You guys thinking maybe, uh, my wife answered this, I, I asked her this question yesterday and she came up with this, it didn't occur to me. And I should have thought this, but she said, because the woman came out at noon. Yeah. Were you guys, anybody thinking that? You guys thinking that? Yeah, the woman came out at noon. Why would she do that? Because typically they would come early in the morning. She came out at noon to avoid interaction with others. She got tired of the pointing of fingers and the clucking of tongues. Look at this gal. She's had five husbands and she's living with the guy now and so she just, she wanted to avoid that. A lot of guilt and shame going on. She's desperate. She's desperate so she's willing to avoid, avoid people. That's what we often do. We just avoid people. We don't want to interact with people and that's a sign that we're really desperately thirsty, spiritually thirsty. Another would be the fact that she's had five, five husbands She's had five husbands, and the guy that she's uh, living with now is not her husband. And um, one of the evidences that you, you are not drinking deeply of this spiritual water, this soul satisfaction, 
is the instability of constantly moving from one thing to the next, seeking to fill the void. Does that make sense? So there's almost this restlessness. You may be going through sexual partners. You may be going through homes. You may be going through cars. You may be going through hobbies or sports or wardrobes or diets or friends or churches or relocations or drugs or alcohol. It can be any number of things. Now listen to me. All of us, all of us are the woman at the well before coming to Christ. There is a restlessness in our souls that nothing in this world can satisfy. There's almost this, even at times, agitation and, and anger and frustration and this drivenness and and the struggle with doubt and all these things within our lives, that's just showing us we are in desperate need to have our spiritual thirst satisfied. And only Christ can satisfy that, that deep longing in our soul. All of us, all of us are the woman at the well, apart from Christ. And we all tend to go back to that. We easily go back to that. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in our heart. Listen to uh, two quotes from Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and one from Augustine. Here's the first one from Lewis. If I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is I was made for another world. Everyone has that deep longing in their soul. And, and oftentimes we think that it will, be a, you know, it will be satisfied through an accomplishment, an achievement, or the acquisition of certain things, but it's short-lived. If, if you pause long enough between your happiness highs, whatever they might be, you're going to see that that next happiness high, it, it's going to be short-lived, and you're going to be moving to the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. That, that's, it's because we're trying to fill a desire deep within us, that eternity in our heart that only God can fill. If I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is I was made for another world. Another quote by C.S. Lewis, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Augustine put it this way, if there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything else. There is a contentment. There's a contentment in Christ. Oh my goodness. It's out of this world. That's what she was longing for. That's what we all long for. And he's showing her if you only knew the gift of God, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's ours. Deep soul satisfaction, unending source, spring of water welling up within our hearts unto eternal life, everlasting life, not just quantity of life, but a quality of life, a, a rich, robust exciting, energetic, enthusiastic life unlike we could ever experience. Pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing. Number three, it is a supernatural process. 
So we're still talking about this idea of the call to share your faith. This is our vocation as believers. So it's a spiritual sustenance. It's always relevant because everyone has that deep longing in their soul. And uh, it, it is a supernatural process, verses 36 through 38, so that sowers and reapers may rejoice together. That's an odd statement, the sowers and reapers may rejoice together because typically sowers and reapers don't rejoice together. Typically, if you're familiar with farming, you sow and then you wait for about three months and then you reap, okay? But he's actually saying there's almost this miraculous thing happening that as you sow, then the reapers come along and they're reaping almost quickly. Very supernatural, though the Bible does say it is a process and we need to be aware of the fact that little do we know that sometimes we may be planting seeds when we share the gospel with others. And other times we may be watering those seeds. Little do we know what's gonna happen with those seeds. In fact, it tells us, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And, and so what we need to keep in mind is that there's a power in the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so, so don't underestimate the power of your words and communicating the gospel to people. There's something that's happening. Whether you see, see anything happening or not, that's what he wants us to understand. That's, that's a verse found in Romans 1.16. The gospel of Jesus Christ, us sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was a defining moment in my life. It, uh, it made John 10.10, 10, that verse, come out to me so strongly and so vividly. John 10.10 10, where it says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. It, it, it's, it's an event in my life that, that actually compelled me to want to start Desert Breeze, and it's why the second part of that verse is the theme verse of Desert Breeze, John 10, 10, second part, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I was a probationary firefighter with Phoenix Fire. I was at my second station. It was station uh, five. It was the old fire station five. It was located at 16th Avenue in Thomas. We just sat down for dinner and we got the call, it was a suicide. Attempted suicide is what they said. We got on the truck, went a few streets down. It was about a two, three-story apartment complex. Police was already there, had it kind of roped off a, a bit. A lot of people standing outside. Police officer said, ah, it's 901H, he's, he's obviously dead. But uh, acting captain at the time said, well, I need to go in and at least look at it. So he went in, looked, and then he said, hey, booter, talking to me, probationary firefighter, you need to come in and see this. And I walked in that room. I'll never forget it. This 21-year-old had been in a relationship that had been on again, off again, and, uh, and finally the gal said, it's over, and it was so devastating for him that in his studio apartment with his bed there in the main entryway, he sat on his bed, took a double barrel shotgun, propped the butt of the gun in his feet, put both barrels towards his head and pulled both the triggers and just, it was a terrible, the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. 
And it was, as I walked in that room, walked out, I could not shake that. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit was, was compelling me, challenging me to think about what I saw, consider the implications, let my heart be gripped by the reality of it. Consider what might what might change, what might have changed the trajectory of that young man's life? What, what, was, what was at the root of what he needed most? I, I, I began to think deeply about that. And I began to think even more, and even as I was on my, as through my career in the fire department, I mean, every firefighter that attends here, we got a lot of firefighters, we got police officers, and what a dark side of life that you're exposed to. I thought when I started construction, I thought that was a rough side of life, working construction. And then I got on the fire department, began to see something that was so dark and ugly, it was almost overwhelming. And I think that's one of the reasons why the suicide rate is, is high among first responders. I think the divorce rate, I think alcohol abuse is very high. I don't think that most can really handle that unless they really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I began to sort through that, fortunately, I had a good foundation in the gospel, and I realized, oh my goodness, what would have changed the trajectory of this young man's life? What will change the trajectory of individual lives and marriages and homes and, and communities? And I began to kind of look through the options. I, I looked at politics and, and education and economics and self-help and psychology, and all those are good. I mean, politics, writing legislation for the good of society is important, there's no doubt about it. Education can, can teach useful knowledge of the world. Economics, everyone needs a good job. Self-help can help with behavioral modifications. Psychology can teach techniques that can aid self-understanding. But none of these, none of these can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace like the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is the power of the love of Jesus. It's the love that conquers sin and wipes out shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies and restores broken dreams and ultimately changes the world one life at a time. And that, the gospel message got a hold of my life a long time ago and I began to see more and more when I was on the fire department, yes, that's what people need more than anything. They need the gospel. What drove me, it compelled me to start Desert Breeze. That's why we, we have that second part of that verse. I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. That's in the context of the fact that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And that radical message of transforming love has been given to you and I, the church. And, and in essence, the future of people's lives rests in the hands of local congregations like Desert Breeze. That's why it's so critical that we do all we can to get the message out, the gospel message. And, um, and that's, that's why we're ending this series, talking about this. This is why it is so critical. And so how do we do that? How do we, what's the method? And so that's the, that's the call. It is spiritual sustenance, it's always relevant, it's a supernatural process, there's power in the gospel. Here's the method, the method to share your faith. You can see it in verses 29 and 39, very simple, very simple. She says, and by the way, she doesn't know much theology, she, she knows very little theology. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I, I, 
I, I can't share my faith. I, I don't know that much about Jesus. You don't have to know much about Jesus. This is all she shares. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's verse 29. Verse 39, it says, and many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, she doesn't go to strangers or get up on a box on a corner somewhere and preach. I mean, not, nothing wrong with any of those, okay. But she goes to people she knows. I mean, this is relational evangelism. It's lifestyle evangelism because she has some relationship with them and, and some credibility with them. They've seen her life, and so she begins to go and share with them. Now, let me just say this, that you always have something to lose when you share your faith. And there's no doubt there were people that probably ridiculed ridiculed her and said, are you kidding me? You've had five husbands. What do you know? You don't know anything. You're living with a guy. I mean, they could have criticized her and demeaned her and, and you always have something to lose when you share your faith. I have been, I know personally, have been misunderstood, despised, ridiculed, ostracized, laughed at, and discriminated against. And yet I have to tell you, though, that the benefits far outweigh the cost. Matthew 5.10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It also tells us in Acts 5.41, this is just a, I love this, because these early apostles, as they went out into the world and began to proclaim the resurrected Christ, and they were, uh, they were beat, literally, and persecuted and they, in this particular verse, Acts 5.41, it says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They were like saying, bring it on. We can't believe that God would use us to proclaim his name, even if it means a, a beating. And so the, the benefits far outweigh the cost. But here's two parts to sharing your faith. Here's the first one, share your heart. Share your heart. Verse 29, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. She is not hiding her heart. She's not hiding the wellspring of her life. And that's what we need to not do. Don't hide the wellspring of your life. Don't hide what Christ has, has done for you. Just be natural about how you deal with, with your problems, make decisions, or establish priorities. Don't hide. Now, I can't help but think that when she comes to her friends and says, he knows everything about me. He's told me everything that I've ever done. And I can't help but think that her friends probably responded by saying, so he knows about John and Bill and Frank and Tom and Hank. Is that six? Yeah, that's, I think that's six guys. He, he knows about all of those guys? Yes. Yes. And he offered me living water in spite of my past, in spite of what I've done, in spite of who I am. That's, that's the point. And she begins to share her heart. And that's what we need to do. We need to share our heart. John uh, 9.25 is another great uh, simple testimony. Remember the, the guy that was born blind? Jesus, uh, Jesus heals him and the Pharisees are dogging him. Come on, who is this guy? You know, they're trying to push him in a corner and his parents are just like, nah, we don't, they don't even want to say anything. They don't want to stir up any problems. And this guy's bold enough. I mean, if you've been blind and now you see, you don't give a rip about it, what anybody thinks, do you? Huh? This guy could care less. This is what he says. I love it. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. 
I don't have much theology on him. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You can't refute that. They, could, they were just like, okay, I guess you're right. You are, you do, you can see. I mean, they didn't know how to deal with it. Did you, did you know that that's, that's, when you share your personal testimony of the life change that Christ has brought to you, they can't refute that. There's nothing they can say about it. I don't know about, much about Jesus. I'm trying to learn more about him. He just fascinates me, but this is what's happened to me. This is what I've experienced. I love in uh, Acts 420 where the disciples say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In our game of life class, I have them actually, uh, we have all the students write out their personal testimony. And we kind of have a list identifying the testimony themes of your life. And I've got a list. It's probably a good 20 different themes. And so let me just kind of give you just a few of these, maybe five or six of these themes, just to see where you are and what kind of a theme you could use in sharing with others. By show of hands, how many could say, could say this, that God gave you inner peace for your worries and anxiety? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've had inner peace when otherwise I'd be freaked out. And even when I had been filled with worry and anxiety, as I spent a few moments with him, oh my goodness, inner peace that I began to experience. Here's another one. How many have ever experienced forgiveness for your guilt and shame? Show of hands. Yep, oh my goodness. That, when I begin to understand his grace, oh, the freedom of that. How many have ever experienced patience and love in exchange for anger and temper? woo Praise God. How about this one? How many have experienced strength to go on when you were really struggling physically? Really struggling physically? Yep, 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 yep. How about this one? Faith to face your fears. How about this one? You felt lonely. Yeah, you felt lonely and you sensed his presence in your life that was overwhelming and just began to chase away the loneliness. And you got out of that little pity party that you were throwing for yourself, okay? Yeah. And how about this one? Power to change from your addictions and habits and your struggles. Yes. How about changes in your marriage for your marriage problems? Yep, that's me. How about changes in my finances? Yeah, for my financial problems. Yep, that's me. That's just about five or six. Okay, I gave you some different themes that you can use to share with others as you begin to reveal your heart. All that is is that you're showing the wellspring of your life. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. That's what she, she's saying. He knew everything about me. He knows everything about me. Share your heart. And here's the next one. Point to Jesus. Come, to, come see a man. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, the reason why this one is so critical and this is important, this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Um, all other religions are about a path. You got Buddhism, which is the eightfold path, Islam, five pillars, Judaism, ten commandments, Hinduism, reincarnate until you get it right, and then uh, Je Jehovah Witnesses, baptized as a Jehovah Witness, and then door-to-door -door wor uh, work, Mormons, resurrected by grace, but saved by works, and exalted to Godhood by works. So if people were to ask you, so what's the difference between Christianity and all the major cults and religions of our world today? That's it. It's that the major religions of our world are a path 
Christianity shows you a person. Everything else is about a path, and Christianity shows you a person. Christianity is all about a person. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. All other religions tell you what you must do to be right with God. Christianity tells you what God has done, has done to make us right with him. So it's the difference between you must do these things to what has been done for you. And this is what's fascinating about the story. Jesus does not tell her this. Now listen to me, you gotta get this. Jesus does not tell her, go change your life, get your act together, dump the guy you're living with right now, and if you fly straight for a while, then I'll give you living water. He doesn't say that. He says, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, yeah, you can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can only receive it. You can only enter into it. You can say, yeah, I want that. And it's just, all you need is need. You recognize your need for it and you, you come running to him. That's it. That's it. It's not what you do. It's what has been done for you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't say, hey, clean up your act. But right where you are, God meets us right where we are. That's what's so fascinating about the Christian life. He starts right where we are and loves us, and that begins to transform our lives. We don't get transformed and then come to him. We come to him, and then our lives are transformed. And if your life is not being transformed, I would invite you, come to him again and again and again and drink from that unending source of living water. Well, what is that living water anyway, Pastor? I was kind of wondering, what is that living water? I happen to believe, in fact, there's a verse, you can write it down on the side of your notes, it's John 7, 37. John 7, 37. The best commentary for Scripture is Scripture. He actually talks about that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and part of that work of the Holy Spirit is just really back to our series we did in Romans 8. It's union and communion. Union and communion with the creator and the sustainer of the, of the heavens and the earth. It's union and communion with the Father through the Son by way of the work of the Holy Spirit. That we have union and communion with God. That we can know him. We can experience him. We can interact with him. It's a relationship with him. That's what it's about. It's knowing him, and it's through what Christ has done for us. So, th- so that's really critical to understanding the kind of environment that we should have as a church family. I love what a guy by the name of Sam Alberry he wrote a book titled, Is God Anti-Gay? And uh, Sam Alberry is a pastor who struggles with same-sex attraction issues. And he wrote this book, to help people deal with the same-sex attraction issues and also for churches to, to create an atmosphere that was conducive for reaching people that are part of the, the, the gay community. And listen to what he says here. He says, says they need to know who Jesus is before, before being landed with what he requires. Does Jesus require some things of us? Oh, Absolutely. No doubt about it. But they need to know who Jesus is before being landed with what he requires. There is little point in describing how to live in the light of God's grace if someone doesn't yet know God's grace. You always start with God's grace. You don't start by saying, clean up your act and come to Christ. You say, no, come to Christ as you are and drink from this living water. And I I will guarantee you it will change you. Now listen to what he also says. He quotes from Timothy Keller here. And he says, churches should feel more like 
the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. You like that? I like that. I've talked about that for years here. In the latter, that is the waiting room for a job interview, in the latter, we all try to look as competent and impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden, but in a doctor's waiting room, we assume that everyone there is sick and needs help, and this is much closer to the reality of what is going on in church. We are all, we are all the woman at the well until we come to Christ and find our deep satisfaction in him. And that's the environment that we need to have here and continue to have. I think we, ha- we do a good job here at Desert Breeze, but we want to continue with that. And believe me, there is nothing, there is nothing like helping lonely people experience the riches of God's presence. There's nothing like helping love-starved people experience being lavished by God's love. There's nothing like helping guilt-ridden people experience forgiveness and cleansing from sin. There's nothing like helping wandering people experience purpose and direction for their lives. So here's two arguments real quick we'll look at as it relates to this because I think it kind of builds on what we're talking about. So, so two parts to sharing your faith, share your heart, Point to Jesus. Share your heart and point to Jesus. He's the source. He's the one. He's the living water. And so here's two arguments against Christianity. Here's the first one. All good people can go to heaven whether you are Christian or not. That would be one of the arguments against Christianity. In other words, it would go something, something like this. I'm glad that you're a Christian, but I believe that all good people can go to heaven. Christians are narrow to think that only Christians are good. There's a false assumption in that statement. I don't know if you could hear it. There's a false assumption in that statement that Christians believe that their goodness gets them to heaven. Here's the answer. Christians don't believe that it's our goodness that gets us to heaven. Becoming a Christian isn't the admission that we have it all together, but that we don't and desperately need a Savior. Understand? Yep, 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 yep. You admitted that you didn't have it together. That's why you came to Jesus. That's it. And that's, and that's important. Christians have stopped the exhausting activity of trying to depend upon their own goodness, and we are depending upon Jesus' goodness. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And, and so we get that, that perfect record, and he took our bad record on the cross. Here's, a, here's the next argument against Christianity. Exclusive religious truth claims are arrogant and lead to violence. Exclusive religious truth claims are arrogant and lead to violence. Now, let me just say that, first of all, to, to most Americans, it is, it is very arrogant and offensive if you try to convert others to your religious beliefs. It comes off like you're, you're right and everybody else is wrong. Now, here's my answer. Everyone makes exclusive truth claims. It's just kind of human nature to make exclusive truth claims. Uh, First of all, it's not arrogance but compassion that motivates Christians to evangelize. Let me give you an illustration. There are over 1,500 people a day die of cancer in America. Every day. Now, imagine if you found a cure for cancer, all cancer. This is the cure for all cancer. It would not be arrogance but compassion that would motivate you to try to convince people of it. Christians have a cure much more fundamentally important. Much more important. And if you don't share your faith with others, you either don't 
You either don't love them or you don't believe what you say you believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not what? Perish. Do you believe that people will perish without Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will not perish but have everlasting life. And I, like the, I love the next verse. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. I love it. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Here's the second against that argument, this idea that everyone makes exclusive truth claims. So, it's, so first of all, it's, not, it's certainly not arrogance, it's compassion that motivates us because there's a cure. We have a cure for, the, for what ails this world. But secondly, to say that no, one, no one's faith position is superior to anyone else is a faith position. To say that no one's faith position is superior to anyone else is a faith position. You are doing the very thing you're saying no one else should do. If it's arrogant to say that one religion is right, why isn't it arrogant to say that one way to think about religions is right? You can't avoid making exclusive truth claims. Everyone makes exclusive truth claims. Everyone has faith in a set of truth claims. And, and if you ask most people, they would say that they think that their truth claims are are more truer than other people's truth claims. And so everyone makes those truth claims. But here's the big question most people would say, but how are we going to have world peace? Don't these truth claims create violence? Well, some of you are old enough to remember that it was the atheists, the communists, back in the 50s and the 60s that were trying to blow us up. And now it's the religious fundamentalists, ISIS, that are trying to blow us up. So here, here's my argument. Religion is not the cause of our problems. It's not religion. It's our sinful nature, our sinful human nature that is the source of our, our violence. So what are we going to do with our sinful human nature? So the real question, it's on your notes, the real question is what exclusive truth claims are going to lead most to peace? I think the gospel. I'm convinced it's the gospel. Listen to me. The gospel is about a man who died for his enemies. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. Tolerance isn't about not having truth claims. It's about how your beliefs, your truth claims, lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Now, here's the motive to share your, to share your faith. Look at verse 27. Why were they surprised at Jesus talking to a woman? Because this is a patriarchal, racist, moralistic culture. Patriarchal, men never talked with women in public. Racist, Jews never talked with Gentiles, let alone Samaritans, half-breeds. Moralistic, rabbis never talked with immoral people. And what does Jesus do? He crosses every barrier. He goes right through every barrier. Pretty amazing. There are two motivations for sharing your faith. Pride, next fill in the blank. I'm right, you're wrong. And this is based on salvation by works. Salvation by works produces that kind of pride. 
and that, that kind of elitism. But the next one is love. And this is what we see in Christ, and this is what we should see in our lives. I want you to have what I have. Salvation by grace produces love. Now, here's three statements about grace. Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion here this morning. But here's the first one. Grace is that God sees me at my worst and loves me to the heavens. He sees me at my worst and he loves me to the heavens. It goes to the statement that I've, I've heard, you've heard me say before. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but more loved than I ever dared to dream. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. But he loved me so much. He wanted to die for me. It's an important statement to remember. That's what it's about. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in order to make us lovable. Here's the next one. Grace keeps us from seeing any person or situation as hopeless. Do you guys believe that? How many have ever looked at someone and said, oh, they're hopeless? How many have ever felt hopeless? Gee, yeah, both. I've, I've, I've done both. I've felt hopeless and I've looked at people and thought they were hopeless. Grace keeps us from seeing any person or situation as hopeless. Here's the last one. Grace is God's offer of living water because on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. He gives us living water even though we are undeserving because Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 8.9 that you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Let's pray. Father God, it never ceases to amaze me, never ceases to amaze me how much we matter to you, that not only did your son come to seek and to save those who are lost, Luke 19.10, but all heaven erupts into a cosmic celebration over one sinner who repents, Luke 15.10. If you're here this morning and you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus, oh my goodness, this would be a great morning. It's a gift. Come to him this morning and receive the gift. Acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Confess him this morning as your Lord and Savior. And then you can join us as we take in communion in just a few moments. God, we thank you that by grace, through faith in your Son, Christ Jesus, we have been made characters in and carriers of the great story of redemption that has infinite and eternal implications. Many people in our lives will never see Christ, will never see your Son for who he is until they see him living and working authentically in and through our lives. Help us to daily realize that how we live our lives by sharing our heart and pointing to you, motivated by love, matters and can affect the eternities of people we care about. Make us more effective fishers of men. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. we got three stations.